you have your Bibles, I do invite you. We're uh, returning to our uh, study of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4 is where we are. And you may recall that the context behind much of what Paul has written in these early chapters is that he is in part writing to combat um, false teachers and their false teaching. But in pursuit of uh, uh, one of the directions the false teachers have worked in is to undermine the teaching of Paul. And in order to do that, they have sought to discredit his apostolic authority and his ministry. And so much of what the apostle has been doing is is a bit of a, a defense of his apostolic authority and thereby the credibility of what he is teaching. And so through it, he has also taken time to explain the nature of his ministry, of his apostolic calling. He's taken time to explain the nature of the gospel itself and and the majesty, the the value of it. And he's returning to that subject here, even as he's, um, again, defending his apostolic authority. As we read, it may be helpful, too, just to understand um, this is a a fairly um, personal, biographical passage that the the apostle is uh, communicating. But he's using the, the, the first-person plural uh, pronoun very often, we and us, um, primarily to refer back to himself or perhaps to his small band of co-workers that are working together uh, on his missionary journeys. And so um, much of this is, it has direct relevance to the Apostle Paul and his ministry, but there are also these principles that clearly he understands as being true for all followers of Jesus. This is a great passage. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading and hearing of the Word of God? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? We give you praise that you have not left us without a divine word from outside ourselves. Lord, you show abundant grace to your people, and we are grateful. Now may you, Spirit of the living God, fill us 
instruct us and conform us into the image of our beloved Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage opens with a profound observation. We are far more than we seem. (laughs) We are far more than we seem to be. He, He begins with this great metaphor. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, verse 7. That's how he opens this section. We have a contrast between something priceless and a package that is quite ordinary uh, in which it is placed. You know, think of perhaps carrying a da Vinci painting in a green garbage bag. It's something like that that he has in mind, something of incalculable value hidden in something that is painfully ordinary. So what's the treasure? And what are these jars of clay? What, what, what is the, the metaphor uh, pointing to? Well, and, and both of these pieces are important for us. The first has to do with the treasure. And the treasure is what, you know, kind of captures the imagination, as treasure always does. The treasure um, flows right back in verse 6. He's kind of just mentioned uh, uh, this as as a lead into verse 7. So in verse 6 we read, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, and here's the, the treasure that perhaps he's immediately thinking of, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory. The glory of God, especially as it is seen, as it is witnessed, as it is embodied in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the glory that is in us. And, you know, I think there are lots of ways that you could describe this treasure. As he goes back a little bit, um, he describes this treasure as the new covenant, the the gift of this new covenant ministry uh, that has been entrusted to him. In chapter 3, Paul's described this as, uh, uh, again, as this this new covenant glory. And just to summarize what he had to say about the new covenant, some of the, um, the benefits of this new covenant include things like eternal life, you know, and we're going to come to this next week. He's going to come back to this issue of just the importance of what eternity, the gift of eternal life is all about. The new covenant represents the perfect righteousness we need to stand with confidence before a holy God. It is um, uh, the hope for a future so that Christians are never ultimately without hope. The new covenant means freedom from condemnation and freedom to be who God wants us to be. This is a priceless treasure because it also means power. And in chapter 3, he describes it as being transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit into the image of God, or specifically into the image of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, Jesus describes this treasure as a pearl, A pearl of great price, which when a merchant um, discovered, he sold everything he had in order to come into possession of that treasure, of that pearl. 
And that pearl, of course, as many of the parables of Jesus are, they're about the kingdom. So if you want to think about this treasure, it's the kingdom at work within us. It's Christ reigning within us. And he goes on to describe this treasure in terms of power when he says, um, uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power that's also connected to this treasure, ultimately it belongs to God. The kingdom is inside us and it is of incalculable value. But in order to really allow that treasure to shine, there's a second piece to this metaphor that we have to understand. And this is the part we may not appreciate quite as much because he says this treasure is being housed in jars of clay. Well, you know, that's a kind of a, a quaint image from our point of view. What is he referring to? Well, he's referring just to baked jars of clay, pottery, that would be used usually for very common purposes. Sometimes, actually, it could be used to hide um, precious jewels or valuables. And in some cases, they would take these jars, they would seal them with the valuables, and they would hide them in the ground. Um, they would dig a hole. Literally, they would you know, bury their treasure in the ground. But more often, these jars were just inexpensive. They were usually easily broken. They were cheap. And they would be used for the most common, um, uh, to carry the most common things, like water, food, and, and uh, not uncommonly, human waste as well. And, and the point the apostle's making is, the reality is that this treasure, the gospel, is housed in these human bodies, the, the flesh, that in many respects is weak, in many respects is without power. And what we have to understand is that the treasure is not something we create. The power that flows from this treasure is not our human resourcefulness. It's not the power of the will. This is a power that comes from God. And it is a power that God loves to release in those who recognize their human and spiritual weakness. Later, Paul will say that when we are weak, then are we strong. The apostle says that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Our job is to get out of the way of the Spirit. Our job is to let the Spirit operate for the purpose of making the kingdom of God increasingly visible in and through us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And so Paul continues his train of thought, thinking about his own ministry and all the challenges, setbacks, and persecution that he has experienced. The only explanation for his success, and this is where part of the apologetic is setting in, is in fact this treasure, this surpassing power of God at work in and through the apostle Paul. And we too need to understand that in the midst of, of trials, God's power, it not only sustains us, but it continues to flow through us, or at least potentially it has um, the ability to do so. So in verses 8 through 12, Paul gets personal, and he uses a series of four additional contrasts 
to demonstrate the power of this treasure, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in and through him. Thinking about his ministry experience, um, and, and he will recount and using all kinds of, uh, of descriptions of the suffering and the persecution and the pain and the anguish in his soul, in some cases the depression um, that he struggles with as he, prosecu- as he continues to seek to be faithful to the Lord in fulfilling his apostolic calling. The first of these contrasts, verse 8, though he is afflicted, the apostle is not crushed. Now, this word affliction is interesting. It means to be under pressure. The apostle felt himself to have a burden, and it was coming from multiple directions. Earlier in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul describes this pressure this way. He says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You know, sometimes we might think of the apostles or the great saints as somehow spiritually walking on water. Somehow they've, they've learned to rise above all the cares of life and the challenges and the trials that come with it. But in many respects, it's just the reverse. We think we feel pressure from deadlines and bills and the expectations of others, but in spite of the pressure, it did not crush the apostle and God continue to work through him. And, and what, the Paul's going, what the apostle is going to argue is that, in fact, when people see what he has endured, when they realize he's just an ordinary man, God gets the glory. He continues with the second contrast when he says he was perplexed but not driven to despair. There's a play on words here. In Greek, the two key words are opereo and ex opereo. And this could be trans, uh, translated into something like, Paul was at a loss, but not a total loss. Or he was on the brink of defeat, but still undefeated. That's the way the, 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 the Greek would read to the, um, the Greek listeners. The third contrast, the apostle was persecuted, but not forsaken. Paul experienced many forms of persecution, but through it all, there was the knowledge that God was nevertheless present and that God, in his time, would supply the grace that Paul needed. You know, many of you, I have found, you know, when feeling the pressure, when feeling um, under um, some kind of uh, form of, of, of trial and affliction, just to keep quoting the, the idea that God is present. One of the passages that comes to my mind is Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's one of my personal go-tos, <laughs> like right before I come up into the pulpit. <laughs> The last contrast is he is struck down, but not destroyed. 
You know, a person could be struck down by a weapon, or this is a term that could be used in an athletic contest, like being thrown down in a wrestling match. And so to borrow, you know, an athletic metaphor, it's like Paul, the boxer, you know, he, he is knocked down, but he's not out. He's able to keep getting up, not in his own strength, of course, and that's the point of this, by the strength of God. And so he sums it up this way in verses 10 and 11. There, the apostle writes, always, he sums up what he's just said, always caring in the body that is in his physical mortal flesh, the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What is he saying? What is the death of Jesus that he's carrying around? Well, the death of Jesus is what he's just described. It's, it's the persecutions, it's the suffering, it's the anguish that comes with trying to fulfill the calling that God has placed upon him as an apostle. And as he is willing to undergo the, the challenges that come with the calling and not lose hope, not you know, give in to bitterness and despair, um, this actually means life. And what he's going to say is, this means life for you, Corinthians, for you, the church that I love. And in the same way, as we follow Christ, we too are going to be called to count the cost, to make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom, ultimately, for the sake of God's glory, as Paul ultimately gets, to, gets there, but more directly for the good of one another, for the good of others who are the recipients of that life that continues to flow through us, often through the pain and the anguish. Paul experiences uh, this this death, and he realizes that this means life um, for the Corinthians, verse 12. And so, like Jesus, you know, just a few weeks back, uh, Michael preaching on Palm Sunday, describe the words of Jesus when he talks about being a kernel, that unless, you know, this kernel of wheat, that unless it falls to the ground and into the ground and dies, um, it has to die so that it can grow up and bear much fruit. That's what Paul is saying. And that truth is not just simply true of Christ, and it's not just simply true of the Apostle Paul, but in many respects, it's also true for us as we grow up as we become spiritual adults and we realize our calling is is like the calling of the apostle to allow ourselves to be crushed for the good, for the sake, for the blessing of others. Now, and this doesn't, you know, don't think of this as pure martyrdom. No, because the Lord continues to sustain us. He continues to give us the grace we need. And we're blessed as we see our lives being used for good. Paul continues to invite us, not only to, um, uh, in his experience of suffering, but also uh, into two additional thoughts that motivate him, in, that motivate him even as he's enduring great pain, not to lose heart. So this is interesting. Paul's, he's letting us into his mindset. He's letting us into some of the, the ways that he motivates himself to keep going to not lose heart. 
And so there are two things that he says in verses 13 through 15. The first thing is that God has and will deliver the apostle. He has delivered the apostle previously, and this encourages him. And he knows and he trusts that the Lord will deliver him from future um, trials. I love what the apostle does here in verse 13. Paul writes, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Now again, look at that we as, in this case, I think, really applying directly, specifically, maybe even uniquely to the apostle Paul. And what he's saying is, I have the same spirit as the person who quoted this little quote that he quotes, I believed and so I speak. Now, where's this quote coming from? Well, this is where we can be thankful for our biblical um, scholars um, and who recognize this is a quote from the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 10. And he's quoting the the Greek version of, of the psalm. So it's slightly different than the Hebrew version. But in that psalm, the psalm is about um, the author writing how he had experienced um, some affliction. And it's a psalm of thanksgiving because the Lord delivered the psalm writer from uh, the affliction, from the threat of death. And the result, of, and, and as part of the psalm, the, the writer seems to be saying is, even in this, the affliction, my confidence, my trust is in the Lord. And so I will not be silent. I will keep proclaiming the good news of the creator to to the world. And Paul says, that's my hero. (laughs) I love that guy. I'm not sure who it is, but I love him. I share his spirit that even as I experience the challenges of ministry, you know, just even basic things like being just misunderstood by others, having uh, motives misinterpreted as so often is the case in a fallen world, He's able to say, I know where my faith is. I know that my faith in the Lord is solid, that it is, it is real, that it, is, um, uh, that it will um, uh, be found to be true. He, he's confident that his faith is not misplaced, and he tells us why. And by the way, if you don't have spiritual heroes, just as an aside, you need, we all need heroes. We all need those who have gone before us and have modeled for us resilient, fruitful, spiritual faith. We need those individuals, even as the apostles looking back to this psalm writer, we need those individuals to keep reminding us, yeah, they did it, and I had the same spirit that that abided in them. (laughs) I, too, can also persevere in faith through my trust in the Lord. I can be who God wants me to be because I've seen it lived out by those who have gone before me. So the apostle, he tells us, why does he have this confidence that his faith is not misplaced? Well, it's verse 14. Why is it he can say, I believe, so even what come what may, I am still gonna proclaim the good news of Jesus. Why? Why? Well, it's verse 14. 
knowing that he, that is God the Father, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if if you want to boil it down to how I know that, you know, I was a, uh, I was a, 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 a person, a Jewish person, and, and followed Judaism to the letter, but now I've done a 180, and I have committed my life to following Jesus. You want to know why? It's because of the resurrection. It's because I was an eyewitness to the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And it wasn't just me, but it was the 12 disciples as well. And it wasn't just the 12. It was more than 500 who were eyewitnesses to his glory. And then as I put the pieces together and I see how all of this was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, all this serves as just bedrock evidence that my faith is not misplaced. So come what may, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to continue to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. And then the second reason for his resilience and his perseverance in ministry is he knows that his ministry will result in thanksgiving and glory to God. He is motivated to see the triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be magnified, to be worshiped and praised and adored. He loves, even as we did earlier, as we sang our great God, and we're thinking and meditating, just taking time out to to reflect on the nature, the glorious nature of God in his power, in his righteousness, in his uh, incomprehensible beauty and majesty in his love and his mercy and his grace as he's seated on a throne and as the seraphim continue with, you know, uh, continuously flying in worship and praise of the glorious creator of the universe. Paul says, this is the one who deserves, who rightly deserves all the glory. And ultimately what I'm about is creating additional worshipers so that my God receives the glory and the worship that is rightfully due to his name. Verse 15, he says, for it is all for your sake. He's referring to his ministry for the sake of the Corinthians. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, so that as more and more individuals hear the message, the good news of Christ, and as they, you know, they say, you know, the world is empty, it's a dead end, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care if I get laughed at. I don't care if the world mocks me because I know it is true. I know that it is good and that it is wise and it is the source of life eternal. So I don't care what people think. And he says, as more and people, as more and more people experience this grace, why? So that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You could just replace Thanksgiving here. That's often a way of describing worship. That's what he's talking about here. He's describing so that it increases in worship to the glory of the triune God. This is the ultimate goal. This is 
the shorter catechism, that very first question, what is the chief end of man? And by man, it means everybody. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. That's what Paul is saying here. The chief end of the church is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper, in his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, he writes so eloquently about the priority of worship and the glory of God. He writes this, and and he uses the term missions in describing the work of the church in, in terms of outreach and service and evangelism, both locally and throughout the world. He says missions is actually not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't in many places. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. And that's what the apostle is saying. It's, the, it's what drives the apostle Paul to suffer for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. He says, worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. That's very Piper-esque language there. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people's in the greatness of God, he writes. If the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good in the affections of our own hearts and in the priorities of the church, man will not be well served and God will not be duly honored. Do you want to know why you were made? Do you want to know why you breathe, why you have life, why you exist on this planet? Well, the Bible tells us it's for the worship and it's for the glory of the incomprehensibly beautiful, majestic, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent um, God who made us. It is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is his majesty, his wisdom and goodness and love that propel us outward in service and in ministry. So how can we just sum this up? Well, here it is. God has invested us with a hidden, glorious treasure of Christ and his kingdom. Even if on the outside, we are ordinary and weak in the flesh. But in our weakness, God's power is made strong And by his strength and grace, others get blessed. And God is glorified. And we are achieving the purpose of our lives. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we pray that just as Paul was inspired by the spirit of the psalmist in Psalm 116, may we be inspired by the same spirit, by the same heart and zeal of the great apostle Paul, and by many who have shared in that spirit and that same faith, our mothers, our fathers, our 
grandparents in the faith, Lord, who have gone before us. May we share in their spirit by your spirit. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.